is Christmas time, and that means that the Ten Bell Pod crew is going to be visited by three wrestling Christmas spirits. And you may be wondering what that means exactly, and to tell you, I have no fucking real clue either. But what we are going to do now is we are going to say hello to the American dream, Ghosty Rhodes. Oh, baby, it is the ghost of wrestling path, daddy. And, baby, I'm going to tell you the only way to have a good holiday with your lady. Oh, you got to eat the pussy the way George still ate a turnbuckle, daddy. <laughs> Jake's eyes are bulging out of his head. This is amazing. I I was, I was more shocked that your intro, Micah, like, you were doing some weird shit with shit with your hands, like you were basically doing the gold dust, like rub up and down the torso area. I had to get in character. I had to get in up character to, up to the nipples, and then then Nicholas comes in with fucking porn dusty roads and claims that this is a fucking wholesome Christmas episode. We didn't mention wholesome anywhere in that, baby. I, well, I, last time I checked, Christmas was a wholesome episode, uh, not the holiday that pagans <laughs> celebrate when the moon is full and they have big orgies with horn masks. This is on. more that Silent Night, Deadly Night Christmas shit. Well, so, Nick, you got through it, I think, unless right. you had more there. Well, no, let's see no, if we can get through this it. episode. No, 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 fuck it. Well, welcome to Tim Bell Pod, if you're still listening. I'm Nick Alexander, or Nicolessa. I, I don't know anymore. There you go, yeah. You gotta uh, sell it, man. You gotta sell it with confidence. Don't back down. <laughs> Happy holiday that you do or do not celebrate. Over, <laughs> over in the Manning Cave, stockings hung by the fireplace, I'm joined, as always, by Micah Loving. Hey, 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 hey. As well as... <laughs> Why don't you do your Dusty Rose impersonation again, Nicholas? Because, I mean, if, if, if Mr. Personality over here ain't going to give us anything, you need to play two characters today. We, just... We're already going to have the E icon on iTunes next to this episode, just because of line one of, of this podcast. Because sometimes it appears, sometimes it does, sometimes we get very dirty, and we have the E next to it, meaning it's explicit content. Really? Well, yeah. I'm not even aware of this. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Yeah. And what? we are definitely having it today. And this is a fucking Christmas episode. Just because we said pussy once. I mean, come on. We are also joined by... <clears throat> Twas the night before Christmas, and setting in a tent, was the Eagle Scout himself about to light some flint. When out from the campsite, the Scout heard a clatter. Was Jake gonna have to slap the fuck out of camper? Out from the tent, Jake saw the crony, Micah J. Loving, that Rudy Poojabroni. Brony, I saw He that said, coming. come ye, Micah, make this episode quick. It's Christmas morning tomorrow. Where the hell is Nick? When from out of nowhere, Nick did appear, holding double machine guns and riding a reindeer. Introducing now, Nick said while laughing, on tent core, on camp style, on men scout, Jake Manning. <laughs> That's not going to fit on a fucking shirt. That's not going to fit on a shirt at all. I'm going to hit stop record in three, two, one. We're done. We're done, ladies and gentlemen. I liked uh, 
where light some flint, I would I, I would have put in light some water from flint because it's probably flammable. Oh <laughs> but, wow, nerd uh, shit, nerd shit. But that and you know railing against society, which had failed the people of Flint, Michigan. Oh, so, that is um, good. Today we are talking about one of the great old school hills who turned into one of the most memorable faces of the 80s he had the best breath in wrestling history he was a coach a teacher the student george the animal steel also some of the most memorable body hair of all time let's I not mean, forget it's, that it's up there with robin williams i mean it's right <laughs> really? up there you gotta there's a debate going on yeah that, that is true who has the best body hair and oh that is a good question <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah maybe i mean i stopped you right in your tracks there oh you did that was like that's uh, that's some quality body hair. I, I, I gotta get side by side picture comparisons to really make a decision william james myers was born april 16th 1937 in detroit michigan nothing else happened on this day not a goddamn thing George Animal Steel was so big, and that's all that the universe would allow. Nothing else worth a shit happened. <laughs> Myers suffered from dyslexia in a time period where crippling learning disabilities were diagnosed as shut up before I dyslexia something to cry about. <laughs> in a time? I grew up in that time as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all still kind of did. Yeah. Oh, your son can't read as well? Mrs. Fearbuck, let me sit down and have a conversation to you and explain to you, you know, not all kids are going to be smart. And unfortunately, you have to understand that your son is going to be one of those people who just are not going to be smart. No, don't worry. We'll pass him along. We won't do anything. We won't help help him with his disability. We won't do anything to alter our teaching whatsoever. But don't worry. We're just going to pass him along and let him be a dumb motherfucker the rest of his life. And to which Susie Fearbach cut a fucking Tommy Rich promo yeah. on my fourth grade teacher. So loudly that my third grade teacher said, like, no, 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 Jacob is smart. I will I will help him with his learning disability, even though I am not directly his teacher anymore. So thank you, Mrs. Neal. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. Damn. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, never mind. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. That sounded fun. Right, wait, wait, was Ghosty Rose going to make another appearance? Like, oh, Mrs. Fearbach, baby. I've come out looking at my legs up there, right there. Oh, through the Fearbach. You made the American dream. You moved to the middle of nowhere, Iowa, to live the American dream as a school teacher, married to a farmer. But don't worry, the, the American dream is going to get up inside you just like the Holy Spirit and the spirit of Christmas. I think the fact that we're doing a Ghost Dusty Rhodes cunnilingus Jake's mom bit is the weirdest thing we've fucking done yet. I'm going to go ahead and say that. We are eight minutes in. <laughs> at best. George got into a lot of fights growing up, which toughened him up. And since he was bigger than most of the kids, he usually won, which helped his confidence. By junior high and high school at Madison High, Jim was still struggling with academics, but found an outlet and a lifeline in athletics. Through middle and high school, he played basketball, baseball, and even threw shot put like Jake. Mm-hmm. Well, not like. I, I obviously threw it better. Yeah. So. <laughs> not, not like me. His junior year, old Jim Myers got himself a little girlfriend, but uh, he did get her pregnant senior year. And as it was custom in the 1950s, George either had to burn her at the stake or marry her. So they got married, stayed married for 61 years until George's death. Because that's what you did. Yep. <laughs> I'm impregnating you. I'm now with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> My life is decided. Myers was so good at the foosball that in 56, he earned a scholarship to play in college for the Michigan State Spartans. 
but his college career was a disaster. Uh, a lot of articles say it was cut short due to a, a knee injury, but George himself had a bit of a different story. He flunked out of one class after a fight, losing an entire year of football eligibility. Then the next year, he failed a wrestling class when he let his football teammate beat him, pissing off the teacher, flunking him, losing another year of eligibility. But he stayed in school. He graduated before returning home to become a teacher and a coach at the same high school he went to, Madison High School in Madison Heights, Michigan. He did actually play some kind of European NFL minor league uh, football for the Grand Rapids Blazers. I didn't even, that's uh, that's Michigan. And he got about $100 a game, but he did go on to enlist that research is bullshit. I always heard that he had issues with college football because he was playing at Michigan State. And he goes, oh, that's Michigan State. What's the point of playing for their football team? Damn. <laughs> go Hawks. Damn. So, um, so that's where George's story could have ended. He could have had a nice normal life, put in a few decades as a coach and a teacher, retired and died at an old age via suicide by cop. Because at this point, Jim didn't even fuck. <laughs> We're going to go here <laughs> on a Christmas episode? I don't even get it. Well, I don't even narrative. There was no hint or foreshadowing to build up to Suicide by Cop. Where the fuck is that, Nick? Give me something. What? <laughs> like, it's what? Christmas, Nicholas. I, I, I don't even know what to say here. I think South Park and It's Always Sunny have done a more wholesome Christmas episode than we have. And they just talk about shit the whole time. Because at this point, Jim Myers didn't even watch wrestling. He was a football guy. But he did have a marking mark of a friend who did watch wrestling and ended up pushing him into the sport. So around late 64, early 65, Jim was looking to supplement his income. So he went out with his friend, tried to get a job as a bouncer at a bar. Their job search quickly turned into the two of them just getting drunk together, which I assume led to a, you should just wrestle, man. You should, you should just be a wrestler. I really should, shouldn't I? I'm really good at it. Hey, listen, I've had those many of those conversations, <laughs> and nobody's ever joined me on that path. So, I'm sure lots of those conversations end up in amazing injuries well i was always like hey man brad you we could be like the road warriors like you'd be right? animal and i'd be hawk i'd be because i would be the first to go and i'm crazy <laughs> you're like putting cups on your shoulders for spikes like yeah. fuck yeah look at this so uh at 2 a.m they ended up calling detroit wrestling promoter burt ruby and that led to a meeting at burt's house the next day now jim myers is an ex-college athlete. He's 6'1". If you look at old pictures of him, he is yoked AF. That was enough to get Bert's interest, but when he took off his shirt to reveal he was part Wookiee, Bert knew he had something. He sent Myers to Windsor, Ontario to work out with some wrestlers. Uh, they put him through a 30-minute workout. They did a little bit of shooting in the ring, and Jim handled it because he'd been a fighter his entire life. In the end, they decided they wanted to teach him the business. And I think he, he was taught this in the basement of a Catholic church. I was waiting for some type of, well, that's the best thing that's ever happened in the basement of a Catholic <laughs> church joke from you, but you just disappointed uh, me. I, I was loading it up, and it, it took me a second. Remember, he went to Michigan State, not Penn State. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. 
remember, remember that. Fuck Paterno. Yeah, <laughs> not, he couldn't just win a couple football games. You know, he had to lose a bunch of them and get molested in the basement. <laughs> Christmas episode. <laughs> From there, he uh, would begin wrestling in, in Detroit's big-time wrestling, with his first match being against Klondike Bill in Kalamazoo in a match he described as a half-shoot as most of the vets at the time were still kayfabing him. Just random trivia, Klondike Bill is the man that invented the War Games cage. Do you need to know that? I don't know, but you do now. Well, I, maybe not invented, but definitely built it. Klondike Bill, he's picked up a little bit of fame because of the Conrad Thompson podcast, most specifically the Tony Schiavone one, what happened when, because of the sexual exploits of Klondike Bill, <laughs> which seemed to wash over the legacy that Klondike Bill has put into the wrestling world. Well, as I'm, being I'm, a, I'm as not too familiar with this. Klondike aspect. Bill, like he was the ring guy. Like he was the guy, like if you, you were trying to figure out some crazy gimmick match and how are we going to structure this or we're going to this building, how can we hang this from the ceiling? How can we suspend Jim Cornette from the ceiling in a cage. <laughs> Klondike Bill was kind of the guy that figured that out, built the cage, brought the ring there, set it up. Just the fact that the man drove a ring truck, set a ring up every single day in territorial wrestling, he should be applauded for that hard work time and time again because setting up a ring is fucking miserable but having to do that seven days a week in territorial wrestling, doing the same exact trips. Oh, yeah hauling a trailer setting up a ring and all we remember him for is fucking a woman with a kielbasa sausage <laughs> like he should be applauded for that hard work and dedication and making sure that the ring gets there so they can make a ton of money so. wow didn't know that one thank you jake yep. <laughs> the kielbasa sausage yeah, the part, kielbasa the sausage sausage part. part. Yeah, yeah yeah i didn't know his sexual uh activities proclivities was... yeah. as they would say <laughs> i mean it is the christmas episode and we're going all in uh some would say we're going balls deep but we're actually going kielbasa in today <laughs> so since mr myers was still a teacher and a coach and he planned on still being a teacher and a coach he thought it would be best for the school and himself to work under a mask so he did that Using the name The Student, which is genius. How could it be a teacher if he's a student? Checkmate Oh marks. my god, it's like, no way. Which basically, this is just the premise for the television show Learning the Ropes with Lyle Alzado. I don't know any of the things you said. Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know Learning the Fucking Ropes? With Lyle I, was, I don't even know the actor you just mentioned. Jeez, well, he's not an actor. He's a former football player. They huh. put him in this TV show. They actually well, had- Well, he's an actor now then. Well, he's deceased <laughs> now. Oh, he's he. Don't you, Lyle Zadel, Oakland Raiders, uh, steroids, SI cover. <laughs> steroids. I mean, that's what people know him I, for. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a blind spot on me. Uh, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> and also, too, like I covered learning the ropes on how did this get booked. I thought you paid attention to the shit that I do. There's a lot of stuff in the world, Jake. I posted a <laughs> clip to the pilot to learning the ropes on, on Facebook because it's it's amazing because they he had a. The television show had a relationship with Jim Crockett Promotions, and they had, like, Ric Flair, the Road Warriors, Ronnie Garvin, uh, Italian Stallion was even on an episode of Learning the Ropes. They did a whole season. It's pretty fantastic. Look it up on YouTube. There's also a... I can't believe I fucking glazed over the fucking Ricky Morton Rock and Roll Express episode. Wow. That is worth seeing alone. I feel embarrassed now if you're mentioning all this shit. Check out Learning the Ropes. Also, check out the How Did This Get Booked episode on Learning the Ropes. (laughs) It came out almost a year ago to the date that this episode came out. So, check it out. It's 
fantastic, worth a look for sure. But it's basically George Animal Steele's career as the student. And uh, one of the details I like the most is Gary Hart was his manager, and he would uh, he was called the student. So Gary Hart would explain to the commentators that that's why his client could not do legitimate holds or maneuvers because he's still learning stuff and he has undisciplined crazy strength blah 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 so i thought that was a fun little gimmick gary would also kind of coach him from the sidelines since george was still so new and they worked out like a series of like numbers and cues and even used a whistle to call spots kind of <laughs> like awesome. football plays that's great as he learned he grew to respect the art of working a match and he credits the old timers he came up with for teaching him as they traveled together, learning the business from the backseat of the car, as he said. George, he never really did the whole territory thing. He was working locally, part-time, for extra money. In fact, he often turned down road work, but all that changed when Bruno San Martino came to town. The student had a good match that night, and since Bruno was always looking for a new monster to kill, they traded info, and a couple weeks later, Bruno called, told him to drop the name and drop the mask, and join him in Pittsburgh in 1967. Jim, I want to to get in the car. <laughs> why, did, why did my Bruno just turn into Dracula all of a sudden? I want to wrestle your match. I want to wrestle a match with you in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, ah, I, ah, 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 ah. And I, then I pin you. One, two, two three. Ah, 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 ah. I, my Bruno was wow. so good on previous episodes. Why I, did it turn into Dracula all of a sudden? Christmas episode. That's the blame. George said in his shoot that he was in Pittsburgh when he was looking for a new stage name, and since he was unmasked, he still wanted to try to conceal his identity as much as possible. Jumpin' John DeFazio suggested Jim Still, since they were in the still city of Pittsburgh. He dumped the Jim part as to give no leads to his life as a double agent and landed on Still, George Still. One random rumor I came across is uh, apparently Animal and... DeFazio had a match where Steele got so mad that he legit stabbed him with a pin multiple times. Oh, I don't know if that's real, but I heard that rumor, and I like passing along weird shit. So there you go. Steele might have stabbed him with a pin. So George started working in Pittsburgh with Bruno, debuting in a singles match before working a tag match against Bruno's team to set up a feud between the two. And the feud between Bruno and George led to sellout after sellout after sellout. Pittsburgh was huge for the character development of George Still. It was there. The crowd started chanting Animal Adam, and it just stuck. I'm not an animal. I'm a people. It would also be the debut of the turnbuckle chewing. The promotion used to give out little prizes to fans, and one show they gave out little satin pillows. An old lady threw it at George, as throughout wrestling history, little old ladies do not fucks with hills. George bit into the pillow, he tore it open, feathers went everywhere, which got a really good crowd reaction. In the locker room, they were kind of needling George about it when someone joked, you should eat a turnbuckle. Well, a couple weeks later, George is wrestling Chief J Strongbow. The crowd was super dead, so the animal bit into a turnbuckle, and they marked the fuck out. And from that day on, George would ingest thousands of pounds of foam stuffing. Jake, I want to ask, I assume later in his career they were maybe kind of gimmicks so he could bite into them, 
the first one, do you think you could really bite into a turnbuckle and rip it open and stuff? Was oh, it that easy? Old territorial wrestling, some of the fucking rings yeah. were not of fucking quality standard. <laughs> I fully believe that this turnbuckle that he tore apart and ate, the turnbuckle pad was probably held together by duct tape, so <laughs> okay. it probably wasn't hard to tear into <laughs> right. it. Now, obviously, the later WWF ones, they probably had to gimmick just a little bit because of how professional and good-looking the rings had to be, but right. I guarantee territorial wrestling, like, it was probably pretty easy. So some of those turnbuckles were hanging on by a thread, and George Animal still just happened to come by and pull that thread. Although I do love that George Animal Steel is in a match with Chief J Strongbow, and he's just like, yeah, this is not going <laughs> this well. Is shit. This, this is, is shit. fucking shit. <laughs> And I'm just going to shit all over this right now. And I'm going to go fucking eat this turnbuckle because I need a little goddamn excitement in my fucking life right now. After a summer in Pitt, it was time to go back to school, which George did, even though the payoffs for just a couple of his matches were more than George made in an entire year as a teacher. Uh, yeah, insane. It's a great fucking gig, too. Being able to make so much money in the summertime, being a wrestler and then going back. And your regular teaching gig and contributing to society and coaching football. And, and also, too, like, getting those breaks away from pro wrestling are kind of important. It just kind of, like, refreshes the batteries and then also, too, makes them appreciated a little bit more. So that way, when you can come in, you can kind of be a little bit more recharged. And my uncle actually lives in the Detroit, Michigan area. And uh, I remember him mentioning a couple of times that he knew some people that knew Jim Myers like coaching football yeah. and remember him as a coach and, and, and as a school teacher. Like he's run into several people like, yeah, George Animal Steel was my football coach or yeah, George Steel was my teacher in whatever subject he taught. But also too, something that George said in, in, in the shooter interview that got kind of glazed over that nobody talks about is when George was wrestling, he would drive by himself because he didn't trust anybody not to have drugs yeah. on them. And him being self-aware enough to know, like, hey, I have to be careful what I do because I don't want to lose this teaching gig. And for him to, like, have that much respect for something he was not making that much money at, but understanding that, like, hey, I like being a teacher. I like being a football coach. This is what I want to do. This wrestling thing is awesome. Great. I enjoy it. I'm making a lot of money at it. But at the same time, too, I got to keep this teaching gig and I have to make sure that I keep my nose clean and I stay away from people that could possibly jeopardize my career as a teacher. I, I don't think that gets put over nearly as much. And also, too, traveling by himself would mean that road costs are more expensive. So he's not splitting gas. He's not splitting yeah, hotel true. rooms. He's not getting trans for driving around in his car. So expenses are much higher because of that. So he's not making as much money as he would like, as opposed to like cramming four guys into a car and saving some money that way. I think that gets kind of glazed over when we talk about George Animal Steel. George loved his time in Pittsburgh working with Bruno. He loved the money he made. And then Bruno also loved working with George. However, people started spreading rumors that Bruno hated working against George and that George thought Bruno's payouts were cheap. And this led to a lot of heat between the two. And if Bruno was more petty, he could have squashed George as far as WWF was concerned. But Bruno ended up calling George on behalf of Vince Sr. in early 68. The two bickered a little bit, but they both realized that they had been worked by gossipers. 
This led to the two of them teaming up, teenage drama styled, infiltrating the cool girls' clique, stealing their boyfriends, and winning the homecoming queen. Bruno invited George up to New York and the WWF. And after a warm-up match or two, George would have his first ever match in Madison Square Garden, May 20th, 1968, wrestling Bruno Sammartino for the, the World Championship in a one-hour Broadway. No pressure. One-hour Broadway. You and me, Madison Square Garden. Bruno San Martino on the marquee. Can you see it? Vince McMahon, I tell you, can you see it? Bruno San Martino versus George the Animal Steel. Bruno, Italian strongman, beating an animal in the Madison Square Garden. It's bigger than the circus. It's bigger than New York Knicks. Bigger than New York Yankees here in Madison Square Garden. For you, Vince McMahon. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> George spent the rest of the summer working with Bruno before heading back to school that fall like a square. George was invited back to New York in 69, getting a series of wins to build him back up before running right back into the buzzsaw that was Bruno with the belt. He'd repeat that in 70 and then again in 72, starting over the whole process with the new champion, Pedro Morales. And for him to work New York and you're trying to keep your wrestling career secret is kind of a gamble. Yeah. yeah. Because New York is where all the publishing is. That's where all the wrestling magazines are based out of. So if you're working the New York territory, you're going to cover by all the wrestling magazines that go out throughout the country. So you're going to get all the publicity in the world. So obviously some of his students would see pictures of him in the magazines and be like, is this you? And it goes, I'm not that ugly. You know, like that <laughs> was, I, I think his line was, you think I'm that ugly? Yes. Cause he would, <laughs> I'm not that ugly. Cause, Come on that, now. cause that, that was an era in time where we actually respected our teachers <laughs> and you didn't want to upset them. Now we're having full blown uh, arguments and fights with teachers in classrooms, just as we see on Facebook. Um, we, we we're at least consistent on, we've always paid them shit. So there's, <laughs> yeah. there's that going on. Yeah. <laughs> In 73, George would actually spend a little bit of his summer break in St. Louis before Vince Sr. called him back up to New York to do some jobs for Gorilla Monsoon, Chief J, and also Pedro. Also around this time, it won't be brought up in uh, George's feuds, but he also had a really comical feud with uh, ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta. There's a couple clips where every time Gary Michael Capetta would begin to announce George Animal Steel, George would run in the ring and chase him out before he could even finish announcing. And it was one of those good kind of ongoing bits that they would work in there that George kind of was kind of the beginnings of his comedic character that he honed. And uh, there was one... There was a Bruno San Martino match that I found in the match listings that was um, 7-12-75. They had a 46-minute curfew draw. Have you heard of it, about this before, Jake? A curfew draw? Yeah. Um, curfew is, I think it was like midnight or 11 o'clock. Like 11, could, I think, is yeah, what it was. 11 o'clock was, you, you weren't allowed to have events past that because of subways and... And then the, the, apparently up. there might have been a thing with like Union and Madison Square Garden, yeah, too. Yeah, just all those things like, hey, you need to have this done at this particular time. Like, if you look at some old Madison Square Garden classic matches i think there's like a match with the british bulldogs and the heart foundation because usually they would put like hulk on third or fourth to ensure that you oh, at least got hulk. so right. you at least ensure that you for sure got hulk on the card and then you would put like the bulldogs and the hearts last because they were tough to follow anyways but also to have them wrestle to a curfew draw 
Huh. And they would wrestle and they would just keep moving. And they're like, hey, just go out there for whatever time we have remaining because we don't want either of you to lose. You guys are going to do all the cool spots. And then we'll just say curfew, uh, you know, time limits like done. And then you guys are going about. And they, they kind of did stuff like that. So they would always put like Hulk in the middle to make sure that you saw Hulk because that's who you paid to see. But then you'd have this really great match doing all this stuff. And then to preserve both guys without them doing a job. You just put them out there, have them kill each other, and nobody would be able to follow it anyway. So that's kind of <laughs> what they would do with that. Because you wouldn't want somebody somebody who you paid all this money to go see, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, curfew draw. We were able to get the full draw. But also, too, if you were doing one-hour broadways like this or in an instant like this, like, hey, we want to come back with this match. Right then we'll put them on last do the curfew draw then the, the next month like hey this will be earlier in the card we'll put them out there to ensure that there will be a finish and then you do a 60 minute broadway and then like okay well then we have to have <laughs> Fuck. so that way so it's like drawing more money out of people yeah, so you, you can you could use that hindrance in your favor hell yeah to anyone out there who's like george still isn't cool because he never did japan like the bullet club or scott norton <laughs> Scott Norton. Well, he went to all Japan in '74 and New Japan in '79. Fight the Patriarchy. '74, he was up against Baba Jumbo Saruta, uh, the Destroyer. '79, he was kicking ass with Antonio Inoki, Ricky Choshu, Fujinami, Masa Saito, and Strong Kabayashi. So, I mean, George was getting in there with him. Well, it it was almost inevitable. I mean, because of New Japan's relationship with WWF. He was going to go there anyways. Well. Also, also too, like, he could be a big monster. And Baba needs a monster to fight. He, he, he likes these American monsters. And his style was very similar to the Sheik. And, of course, his relationship with the Sheik. He's going to open up doors for him and all Japan there. So it was just inevitable. And, and for what they were booking in, in Japan at that time, this American monster. Because that's what's so weird about someone like me, a child of the 80s, remembering George Animal Steel being this lovable character. Yeah. He was actually this big monster <laughs> heel and this credible, credible monster in a sense because of his look. So, and it almost, almost like kind of chic like, but like very, there were a lot of like territorial monster guys. What's his, uh, Furpo, uh, Piro Furpo. I, I, I know I'm, the name, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, for, for Frankie Kane. I know his real name. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, very, very much, very like a wild man. Well, yeah, who's untamable. That's just gonna like just mess stuff up. Eat turnbuckles, bash people in his head. Uh, no, do a couple wrestling moves. Like, oh, the monster knows how to wrestle and and convey that that story. So. And speaking so much to that, so much of my research, just digging in message boards and finding people talking about George. So many were like, I was eight years old. And George would run through the crowd and I was legitimately terrified and my dad was too and he was fucking 42 <laughs> and then George he would get escorted to the ring by like a wedge of cops you know like in a good formation to hold off all the people that are trying to legitimately fuck up George like the the amount of heat and the amount of just uh molten just hate that George would get from fans back then and fear was incredible and like Jake said, you most people that are listening to this know him from his 80s kind of cartoonish work, but uh, he was apparently just over like a motherfucker as a scary-ass heel. Oh, is that the second Christmas wrestling spirit? Well, it's Jimmy James P.P. Cornette here, and I just...
just finished a lengthy seven-part Twitter post on why the Canadian Destroyer has done more damage to humanity than the Khmer Rouge. Because I tell you, the only thing I hate more than Joy Ryan's dick is Joy Ryan getting more retweets than me. And why is this six-star matches, seven-star matches? I used to watch five-hour Broadways with Ed Strangler Lewis and Stan Lane doing drop toe holds and spinning wrist locks, and that shit was fucking 59 stars, because all I know is AEW stands for assholes everywhere. Okay, gotta go. About time to rub my dick on the face of this Wendy's drive-thru lady. Ha-ha! Goes to Christmas present or whatever the fuck we're doing. God damn. Jimmy Hart is really fucking angry, guys. Did you not see Jimmy Hart? Jimmy Hart's sound, he said the verbiage of Jim Cornette, but but Jimmy Hart was here with a megaphone saying all that stuff. I, I think the, the idea was that that was Jim Cornette, and most people would think that's Jim Cornette. I was going garbage. for Mickey Mouse as James Cornette. I mean, if you're going to do a Jim Cornette, you got to put a Kentucky accent on it. If I tried to put nuance to it, I'd fuck it up because I'm not that good at it. So, so I knew I, like just Mickey had, Mouse. I just had to go full like high pitch Mickey Mouse, Jim, Jimmy Hart. If shit. you said baby in there somewhere, I'm like, then yeah, you're definitely Jimmy Hart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, baby, this is what we're gonna do. Assholes everywhere, baby. <laughs> and we're gonna do this. I want my airbrush everything. Airbrush. That's what AEW stands for. Airbrush everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, that should be a fucking t-shirt. <laughs> fucking Jimmy Hart says that AEW stands for airbrush everywhere. Like, that is that is ingenious, and I just came up with it as if this is the best improv scene ever. I think my favorite match of doing uh, research, watching stuff, uh, George Steele versus Tony Guerrero, Madison Square Garden, 6-7-77. It's the best to give you an idea of what George was as a heel then, and just the, the heat and the pops that just a single kick or punch would get off of hitting George and Guerrero just blowing up. And the, the shots of the crowd are great because they're losing their mind. They're taking pictures of George. It's the true spectacle. It was it, the match even has a shitty DQ finish, but I mean it's Tony Gurria versus George Steele is probably the best uh, George Steele overall match I saw. Good match, mate. It was very good. Uh, <laughs> I dug all that while you're doing all the animal shit. That was enjoyable, my friend. Oh, mate, uh, it was a good job. That's my Tony Gurria. If you couldn't fucking tell. The Rick Bolton incident. Did anybody watch this? So George used to do a fl- flying hammerlock where he would he would do the hammerlock, but he would hold them up, and it looked really good. So Rick Bolton was a jobber who who George was just beating on uh, normal small shows. George lifts him up for the flying hammerlock, drops him down. His shoulder pops out of socket, rolls over into the weirdest, nastiest fucking way ever. George starts kicking the shit out of his shoulder, destroying it. He keeps going at it. He, he does the hammerlock thing again. I read so much stuff about people watching this live and almost puking, but it turns out that Rick Bolton actually had a double-jointed shoulder, and because of this, he used this to put over George big time, and uh, Bob Backlund talks about this in his book, that they built this uh, up when George destroyed this poor jobber's shoulder and just wouldn't hold back, and he was a relentless monster, and to build their heat up and to build their feud up. But uh, look up Rick Bolton, George Steele on YouTube, because it, it, Rick really goes for it. And that that shoulder looks nasty as shit. It's it's it was creepy, man. It was brutal. <laughs> I was like that. I like just like a jobber's like, hey, I can dislocate my shoulder. Let's use that. Yeah. By 1984, George thought his career was more or less over. He was pushing 50 years old, and to add to it, 
Vince Sr. was stepping down, who had been his contact for WWF throughout his entire career. They shared a tearful goodbye, and George went in for another year of teaching and coaching and more or less planned to just kind of fade away. But that spring, he got a call from Vince Jr., who had dropped the W as the new leader of the WWF. Vince offered George a full-time run throughout the year. George had hit 25 years of teaching and coaching, and he thought it was time. So in his late 40s, for the first time in his career, George Steele would become a full-time professional wrestler. However, George would soon discover that the new WWF, in his words, was very cartoony. Jim Myers was a very intelligent, well-spoken man, and he used his animal character kind of as like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, or Incredible Hulk thing that slowly overtook his personality for spurts. But that all changed at a WWF taping with Vince. He was cutting one of his promos when Vince stopped him and said that the animal was making too much sense. George was annoyed by this, so to be sarcastic, he went the polar opposite, speaking gibberish, letting out a da-da. He thought Vince would be like, okay, George, all right, I get it. But nope, Vince was like, ha-ha, 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 you don't say goddamn, you don't say a fucking word. It's just like, I'm an animal. I love it, I love it, it makes no goddamn sense. This is exactly, this is exactly what I want to hear. Right there. All right, give me some. Yeah, George, 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 give me, 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 give the man wrestled Bruno in the garden, and all he's remembered by is just eating those turnbuckles. Yeah, but yeah, that's what wrestling is. <laughs> all right? Like, like, fuck, man. Fuck, man. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times in 2009 and 2010 I was going out there, calling a match in the ring, and going 45 minutes, balls out, taking superplexes, regular superplexes, ability to back superplex off the top rope, going, calling out these elongated spots, going after mm. it, hitting it hard, and then as soon as I'd get over to the merch table, after wrestling 47 minutes at a Virginia fair on 4th of July, <laughs> the only only thing that people could say to me is like, man, I liked it when you read that book. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I like it. I, was, I, I laughed a lot, and then I went to the bathroom for yeah. the rest of your match. Yeah, not even that. Like, I saw the whole thing but that book right there that was the best part of the whole goddamn thing right there that's the way it is and like I know he may roll his eyes at the latter part of his career but fuck man give me the latter part of a career where I'm just a character coming up with shit selling fucking merch awesome fucking t-shirts I wish the back fucking nine of my career could be the back nine of George C. Animal Steel's career aside from a very short run as a face when he was just a noob George had been a career heel, but all that would change at the first ever Saturday night's main event that aired May 11th, 1985 from Uniondale, New York. George would open up the show teaming up with tag team champions Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. After a rendition of the Soviet national anthem, what is this, the RNC? They take on Ricky, <laughs> they take on Ricky Steamboat and Barry Windham and Mike Rotunda, who of course went on to become WCW's Michael Wall Street. You're not giving IRS love, you're going to fucking Michael Wall Street. 
<laughs> interesting v- choice. It was VK Wall Street for a while too. <laughs> Let's put a little goddamn re- put a little goddamn respect on VK Wall Street. Can we do that? Can I we give a little love to Captain Mike Rotundo? Nope, not doing that one. Captain not doing Mike. that one. Fucking I'll do Captain. Mike. I'll do Mike, but Captain. not VK Wall Street. During the match, George goes for a tag, but both Shiki and Volkov hop off the apron. Focused on that, George gets surprise rolled up by Barry Windham for the loss. After there's a scuffle, George chases Nikolai and Sheik off. Then Captain Lou Albano hops in the ring to console George, leading to him joining Bono's face stable of good guys. Captain Lou would also help George's face turn, taking him to Dr. Sigmund Ziffs to get him some electric shock therapy. And it was working. George even said whom, which is a very smart thing that only, only smart people say whom. And uh, he even got out of Al Now Brown Cow until the quack doctor turned up the electric shocks too high and scrambled George's brains forever. Nick, you say quack, but in the lead up to it, Vince McMahon clearly states that he has two degrees, (laughs) one in psychology and one in gynecology. (laughs) And I don't know why the fuck they did that joke, except it was just an easy pussy joke. I said pussy again on the Christmas episode. (laughs) When you say somebody's a gynecologist, it's funny. <laughs> I just uh, laughed. As, uh, I, I, I've already laughed enough as it is on this podcast. <laughs> Let me tell you something, pal. Uh, gynecology is funny. Know what else is funny? Proctology. <laughs> oh, that I, is that's funny. I wanted him to have three degrees and one of them in proctology, but uh, they told me I couldn't do that. I couldn't have that much fun on my own television program. <laughs> so during this massive face run, George would have his most famous and most remembered feud in 1986 against the macho man, Randy Savage. George had developed a crush on Elizabeth. And since Macho Man was kayfabe and shoot very protective of Elizabeth, there was only one way to settle it. George Still had to die. Macho and George Still would meet in the New York leg of WrestleMania 2 for the Intercontinental Championship. You know who sung the WrestleMania 2 national anthem? Ray fucking Ray Charles. Ray fucking Charles. And it's like the best <laughs> version of it I've ever heard in my goddamn life. And it was <laughs> really, it, I haven't seen it, it forever. It is so good. And it happened at fucking WrestleMania. It's just, it's insane. <laughs> Macho opened the match as the Cowardly Hill, doing a lot of chase sequences before George grabs him and bites him. They slap each other with some flowers, which was pretty hardcore for this time period. Oh, man. They, they just, they don't just slap, they beat the shit out of each other <laughs> with really, those flowers. George eventually gets the upper hand until he's distracted by that sweet, sweet turnbuckle meat. Macho comes back. He hits him with the flying elbow. (laughs) We've all said that. Uh, George kicks out of the flying elbow, becoming the first person to do so. That's I was going to say, when I watched the match, I kind of marked out a little bit. I was like, holy shit, he kicked out of the top rope elbow, man. George gets distracted by the ref again, which leads to a surprise takedown by Macho Man, who pins George with the use of the ropes. George said that he actually made more money on the Savage Feud than he did with Bruno, which sounded kind of crazy. Because it was on fire at that time. I mean, it was. It was just, they were running globally and nationally. The travel was murder, though. Like, you'd be in the West Coast and then have to fly back to New York, then Pittsburgh, and then go to St. Louis, and then Minneapolis, and then back to New Jersey and Massachusetts, then somewhere down south, and just zigzagging the entire country as if it's your entire territory. But, I mean, sell out crowds every night. 
And Steele mentions that he he feels like he cost Tito Santana a longer IC title run because of how over the angle got, and then they had to put the belt on Savage for that feud. So I thought that was some interesting shit. And uh, one little stupid tidbit that I found, uh, George Steele versus Randy Savage, Saturday Night's Main Event, 1986. It's the YouTube clip that's got like 160 views. You get to watch Dean Malenko ref George Steele and Randy Savage on Saturday Night's Main Event. Weird as shit. Yeah. That that is super weird. <laughs> yeah. But, I had a moment where I really thought I was somebody slipped something in my drink and I stared and was like, that's Dean fucking Malenko. <laughs> yeah. But also another thing I think about with the Savage feud is I think about George Animal Steel being in Ricky Steamboat's corner for WrestleMania yeah. three. And there's a moment in time where because Savage was doing the elbow drop with the ring bell and he yeah. was going to do that on Ricky again and then George rips the bell away. And I will never forget how fucking hard Macho Man Randy Savage kicks Georgie Edible Steel in the head when he rips away the fucking ring bell. Like, I was like, he's an old man. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you, why, why are you kicking him in the fucking head so hard? He's dead. It, 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 that's, oh, it's one of, it's one of two things that I always think about uh, with Georgie Animal Steel. I will tell you what number one is during my final thoughts. Ooh. In 88, George would be part of the WrestleMania 4 Battle Royal. Animal starts the match on the outside of the ring and punches some people from the outside. He even eliminates Jim the Anvil over the top from the outside. And then in the middle of the match, seemingly for no reason at all, he just dips without stepping, yeah, ever stepping it, foot in the ring. Just goes poof. I, I got he hurt his knee at a house show. Uh, oh, was that so a, yeah, he like, I mean, wasn't going to wrestle, something but like still that. wanted to make appearance. Also in 88... George would start carrying a stuffed animal to the ring named Mine, but it was uh, short-lived as in late 88, George had to retire after being diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disorder, Crohn's disease. Which he had a colostomy bag, so every old-timer and every locker room prankster had to make some sort of a joke anytime they crossed the border that George got pulled over because he was smuggling shit across the border. (laughs) Every fucking imaginal version of smuggling shit, every... Those hack fucks. Puns (laughs) left and right about smuggling shit. They set him for Harley, but they got a lot of practice in on George, I'm sure. So, yeah, that's what you do. Two random WWF things before we get out of here on this part. Look up Pat Patterson interviewing George Steele and Captain Lou Albano. There is a moment where Captain Lou talks about how George is getting through some things. I think th- think this is in reference to the Elizabeth feud and with Savage. But Captain Lou says in a promo, yeah, he's seeing this sex therapist, Cynthia Cumtwat. <laughs> and if you listen to it, it is clear as fucking day. And you could tell they were high as sh- high or drunk as shit. Just, you know, throwing stuff in there because who's going to catch that? And then the other thing, look up Can-Am Connection versus Sika and Kamala 5387. George is doing commentary with Gorilla Monsoon. And every time the gorilla kicks it over to George, he goes, huh, huh, huh. And that is a six minute match of George's commentary. But he gets one word in. He goes, tag. <laughs> <laughs> and Gorilla's rolling with it the whole time. It's a testament to George as much as it is to uh, Gorilla. It's some funny good shit. You should definitely check out on YouTube. So throughout the 90s, George became a WWF road agent. And I, I feel like road agent gets tossed around a lot, but not everyone is uh, so diehard in wrestling terms. Jake, what does a road agent do? 
basically they're a guy that will sit down with the talent as they're putting together the match early in the day and just kind of listen to the match, make sure everything's jiving with whatever. And usually the road agents will be in the meeting with the writers early in the day. So they'll be at the building before most of the talent gets there. They'll listen to the rundown of the entire show, what they, they got planned, what they want to see, what they're looking for in each one of these matches, the story they want to tell. And then sometimes the road agent is tasked with telling the talent like, hey, we want this guy over this way at this particular time. And sometimes it's usually delivering bad news or it's a situation like, hey, we really want this really dumb thing to happen. And then the road agent's job is to be like, hey, this is what they want. I've spoken up for you. I, I told them this was not a good idea, but this is what they want to do. So let's figure out how we can make this all jive and work well. Now, obviously, now in the era that they are right now, what the road agent will actually do is the road agent, he'll go to the gorilla position when his match is up, put the headset on and be talking to the referee, talking to people in the truck and talking to everybody like, hey, this high spot's coming up next. Just let you know he's going to climb to the top rope and he's going to miss this. So it lets people know to get in positions for stuff. And so basically, it's part of the reason why the road agent's there is to let people in production know what's going to happen in the match next so they can get the best possible shot for right. it, know how to take it and set it up that way. And then also, too, it's a, a situation if they have to be like, hey, we have to cut this match short, he can convey to the referee like, hey, referee, tell him to go to this spot and and knows th- to cut it. So basically, it's like having a third person involved, almost like a coach moving the match along. Now, obviously, in George's era, they they didn't do that, but that is what kind of a road agent has kind of evolved into. Some people have a little more leeway where the road agent is just kind of there and they're just kind of hanging up like, hey, this is the finish I want. Cool. All right. I'll hang out with you guys. You guys good? You got your finish? Great. Fine. <laughs> cool. But sometimes it can be a bit more involved, especially nowadays, mm-hmm. which people say, oh, it's so overproduced. But I'll tell you what, when you're producing TV in a live aspect and you have somebody, because I, when I, my one dark match that I had, I can't tell you how invaluable it was for Jamie Noble to be on headset to tell the referee to tell us to get to this next spot because we were getting very close to the point where SmackDown was about ready to be live to tape and they wanted to start at a very specific time. And no, it was, no, I had my dark match during Raw. So it was they were about ready to go live on the USA Network. And if me and Alex Riley were still in the ring at the time, that's not how you want to start Raw. Yeah. Um, so him telling us a particular time that got us... So we didn't have to do that, that that thinking of like, what do we need to cut out to shave off two minutes of this match so that way we can get to the back so the ring announcers can get their introductions so we can start Raw in a timely fashion. So it's just... It, it's. People give that give it shit, but sometimes the road agent can be your best friend, even being in an overproduced situation. Sorry, I'm gonna step in. Maybe Nick can help me. Did we know that you had a dark match before Raw? Has that been oh, discussed? Don't worry. Nobody does. And in fact, if you look <laughs> it up on cagematch.com, it's listed as somebody else. So Really? Uh, I definitely wrestled fucking Alex Riley in Raleigh before Raw as as dark matches. The only time I've ever wrestled What year? 2008, 2009, 2010, wow. and 2011 all blur together for me. <laughs> right. um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was 2009. Huh. Because it was just after I wrestled Richie Steamboat, and I wrestled him in December of 2008, and it was Steamboat who spoke up for me, and I know it was just after all the stuff with Richie and stuff like that that happened in 2008. Clearly someone did not listen to Jake's two-part series, Extra Talented, a wrestling podcast by Zane Riley. you unsupportive fuck. There's a lot of stuff in the world. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. 
Yeah, a lot of stuff that I do that you don't fucking pay attention to, like the How to Skip Booked episode on learning the fucking ropes, how which many, would have been great fucking research for George the Animal Steel. How many Vizart events you been to, huh? How many Vizart events have I produced? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> All right. Uh, in 1994, George would go full Hollywood himself, getting a role in the film Ed Wood, where he played Swedish pro wrestler Tor Johnson. In my opinion, my favorite Johnny Depp performance, in my opinion, my favorite Tim Burton movie, pretty sure, even over Beetlejuice and shit, but Ed Wood is fucking fantastic. Animal is, he's perfect for Tor. If you see side-by-side comparisons to him and Tor Johnson from Plan 9 from Outer Space, nails the shit out of it, down to the cinematography, and then, because George always talked about it, he was the first monster to not do makeup, so that's George Steele, a monster in his own right. I will say easily best performance by George the Animal Steele. (laughs) Easily best performance. I mean, we'll, we'll get into uh, some something fishing, something fishy. Oh, Is that it? Yeah, it's good. Did you watch that? No. Oh. In '95, George Still was inducted to the WWF Hall of Fame, and I could only find very edited down versions of his speech. But it was pretty good. In '96, he was inducted in the Michigan High School Coaches Association Hall of Fame, and just when you thought it was time for him to ride off into the sunset. In 1998, the oddities were in a feud with the headbangers as the word retarded was used as often as 1-800-COLLECT was. I watched the match with Mosh, and he just, he throws it is, and then he does the whole Uh, Donald mocking uh, handicapped thing. It's like, and then all the announcers are laughing at him, and I'm like, different times, man. (laughs) Different times. aged like milk. On a uh, December 20th episode of Sunday Night Heat, the Oddities brought the Headbangers a Christmas present to their match with them between Kurgan and Golga. In the middle of the match, the Headbangers opened their giant gift, and much like Tin Bell Pod's Christmas gift to you, it was the original Oddity, George the Animal Still, who popped out, attacked the Headbangers, and ate a turnbuckle, and the crowds in 1998 lost their goddamn minds. Even in the Vince Russo era where they're throwing everything out of them, like, oh, my God, they're eating a turnbuckle. Oh, my God, I can't believe they're doing this. Uh, they chopped somebody's pee-pee off. That was impressive. <laughs> but don't get me wrong, they're eating a turnbuckle right now. This is pretty intense right now. <laughs> oh, my, who got hit by a car and a limousine and this exploded and then Stone Cold with a, a monster truck and then putting cement in Vince McMahon's Lamborghini? <laughs> but, oh, my God, this turnbuckle right here. Oh, my God, I'm going to tell all my friends back in Pikeville, Kentucky about this. <laughs> Is that a real place? Yeah, Pikeville, Kentucky. <laughs> wrestled there a couple of times. George would have some matches, even beating Headbanger Mosh. He also wrestled Draws, who maybe had the most logical finish to a George Still match of all time. George tears open the turnbuckle, so Draws just walks up behind him and slams George's head into the newly exposed Still that <laughs> no longer has a cushion. George drops and he pins him. How did no one in 20 years do that? That's pretty genius. It really is. So uh, uh, by February 99, WWF and George Still would part ways again, but this time Jim Ross called to deliver the news. George is very old school and believed that Vince should have done this. Vince never called him, and this caused heat between the two for years, and that led to January 10th, 2000, when the 62-year-old George Still appeared on an episode of WCW Nitro 
it was part of the angle we talked about on our Snooka episode where Jeff Jarrett was in a feud with Terry Funk and the Old Age Outlaws. Yeah. Uh, I did some research on this match, and it turned out the referee for this match actually killed his family. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's the fucking 10 Bell Pod Christmas episode. But the guy doesn't have a name, so that's fucked up. Uh, Well, we can't say Chris name anymore, guys. That's why. He was a referee, remember? So, uh, George Still would be Jeff's surprise opponent for first of three matches he'd have that night. Jeff Jarrett comes down with a wheelbarrow full of weapons, which is a very American sentence. George kind of throws some stuff at him, chases him around, and while George is eating a turnbuckle, Jeff clocks him with his guitar, knocking him out. However, old age outlaw Arn Anderson in the best stable he's ever been in surprises Jeff with a spine buster. Then the ref, whose name I don't remember, drags George over for the cover. It was something. <laughs> I watched it the other day. It was something, and that's all I have to say. Over the next few years, George <laughs> would show up on the indie scene from time to time, usually just to slam a few shots of turnbuckle and be more or less a manager. There is one match that I didn't think I was going to have to point out, but I do. It's George versus Chef Gillespie, Dizzy Gillespie. Um, it's 82099. It's a little bit older. Chef Dizzy Gillespie looks like uh, serial killer Ed Kemper was a grill cook at Waffle House. But this is one of the most spot-heavy matches I've ever seen George in. It's, it's in like a fucking bingo hall type thing. The ref helps him sell the turnbuckle, so it's not just George going over there and eating the turnbuckle right away. No, we have to build up to this motherfucking eating. And they do like two or three where George is about to eat it. The ref jumps in. No, no, no. We get Dino Divine coming in, and he drops an elbow and does multiple leg drops on mine. Mine is in this. We got every spot possible. Um, George finally opens the turnbuckle, but he's disappointed when the particular type of turnbuckle isn't his favorite type of turnbuckle. (laughs) And he's so sad because it's not his favorite flavor. George, because he's in a spot-heavy day, he hits the flying hammerlock slam. George finally gets the turnbuckle face smash. It's it's a dumpster fire of just indie spot-heavy silliness, but uh, I would recommend watching it because it's George just having fun as shit and probably getting paid 200 bucks. That and any match that George Steele wrestled with Mr. Ooh-la-la. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, there's a couple of like like classic gems somewhat hidden on the High Spots Wrestling Network of Georgie Animal Steel taking on Mr. Ooh-la-la, <laughs> who took that flying hammerlock just about as good as anybody during yeah, that time. Yeah, it looks scary, too, because their arms behind their back and shit. Yeah, so, and and very very similar and spot heavy and crazy and over the top. So right, I'll have to check Mr. Ulala, very under, <laughs> very uh, underestimated for sure. Micah, I will remind you that calling a wrestling venue a bingo hall is a microaggression, <laughs> and I thank you for not being <laughs> part is. of the patriarchy. <laughs> you you did that well. I'm gonna clap for that. Wait, what what is I, in the distance? Is is that the third? spirit we're being visited by is this the the I I can't really make it out but it looks like I don't it's it's like a chrome dome looking (laughs) silhouette of anger and oh (laughs) hell yeah see see boys got got a nice little podcast right over here you got a nice little podcast. You got a few few listeners. Not as many listeners as a Stone Cold podcast. Uh, you know, where we don't pronounce our etches because guess what? I 
have made so much money, I do not need to pronounce my S's no more. Even though my name is Stone Cold Steve Austin. I have stopped pronouncing my S's properly. That's exactly what I'm doing. It's kind of my old age right here. I've become a little bit of an interview. Did you did you or did you not see me on the USA Network just randomly ask Dale Earnhardt Jr. what it felt like to lose his father with no pre-context whatsoever. Just out of the blue. It was like, hey, remember that day your dad had died? Tell me about it. I know we were just talking about gear shifts in NASCARs, and I just like, what did it feel like when your dad had died? That was a gear shift right there. Just all of a sudden, abruptly out of nowhere. Much like this entire Christmas episode has been for you guys. It has been a roller coaster. It has been an up, down, all around, talking about, about Dusty Rhodes eating vagina. You know what else what Dusty Rhodes didn't do? He didn't book me to be the next Ric Flair in uh. WCW. He didn't, no, no. Eric Bischoff, ah, ah, he canned my ass while I was in Japan. Torn bicep. I've told the story many times before. I'll tell it again. I'm going to turn into Roddy Piper and just repeat my stories over and over again from here on till time. Makes no difference because Stone Cold got the best podcast of all time. Yours, this 10-bell pot, it's okay. I'm going to say uh, Merry Christmas to y'all. I uh, hope you all have plenty of Christmas presents. And uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin is out. And poof, and a cloud of dust out of nowhere. What was that? What I don't even that? know what happened. What, 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 what I don't was what, that a? What, what did happened? I hallucinate? We were visited by the three spirits. What did you did you guys learn anything? Not a fucking uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, but we're learning a lot about George the Animal Steel. Tell that much. That's right. right. Well, on November fifteenth, two thousand ten, George Steel showed up on an old school Monday Night Raw during a match between Kofi Kingston and David Otunga. He comes out, he eats a turnbuckle, which distracts Otunga long enough for Kofi to take over and get the win. It was pretty neat. <laughs> so as George aged, he developed diabetes, and he had the problems with his colon because of the Crohn's disease and also some complications with his kidneys all that built up and then sadly on february 16th 2017 jim myers died in a hospital due to kidney failure at the age of 79 watching his health fail george got really religious and presumably made peace with everything he died old and happy and successful pretty solid way to go out especially for a lot of the pro wrestlers we have covered so uh final thoughts on the great george the animal steel i think what's most impressive about george is that he did overcome a learning disability at an early age and when that hits you at an early age and just i don't know the shame in that the, the how hard it is to jump over that when there's so many hurdles that are there for you i think that's really a testament to who he was george is a person it just i'm so fucking jealous of just like he got to be a teacher he still loved football he got to do those things that fulfilled him, but then he got to be a movie star. He got to be a pro wrestling star. He got to go out and get these huge fucking paydays. And then he got to go do the other thing that he loved. And in my life, there's so many different aspects of life that I'm so passionate about and I love. And I want to, like, if I could be a movie director and then, you know, also do indie wrestling stuff on the side, but then also one day get good at stand-up comedy and do that. It's just George did everything that he loved and he got to perform it. And I'm so jealous of his lifestyle. One thing that really stood out was George always talked about uh, how smart his wife was and how close they were. And uh, just him talking about her and him trying and training and learning different moves in the kitchen while they're cooking or whatever. Just, oh, this is how a hammerlock should go or trying different shit when you're with someone who, you know, is helping you along. It, it, it's, it sounded like he had the best fucking life. And it's uh, when when you watch his shoot interview, after you know who George Animal Steel is, who's the, ah, you hurt, angry, 
But then you hear George talking. He's this charismatic, cool, friendly, back and forth dude. And it it makes you love him all the more. And I just, I, I appreciated what he did in the ring, learning all the different things that he tried. He was a great monster heel. Seeing the heat he got with Tony Gurria. And he would add uh, one of his other funniest bits that we didn't even talk about is him doing Freddie Blassie's cutting a promo and he's talking to somebody and the whole time George is using a lighter and setting his chest hair on fire and Freddie has to smack his chest out the whole time or George is going to set himself on fire. Fucking cracking me up. But uh, George just, I, I, I can't say it enough. George lived a life that I'm jealous of because he got to perform and he got to embody all the things that he loved in life. And George said it at the end of his shoot interview, and I believe it 100%. I wish I could say it, but George said that he truly has no regrets, and I don't doubt it a bit. George is a, a weird one for me because I don't mind how he's remembered in wrestling, in wrestling history, but I see the way he's remembered by especially a lot of newer wrestling fans is a little unfair because he was always such a solid wrestler and in his prime he was like a for real jacked monster like he was he looked badass and, you know look up some old pictures you'd see why bruno thought he'd be a good challenger he was able to do the double life and crush it as a teacher coach and a pro wrestler he was entertaining he's definitely someone you'd never forget you know his look was insane he drew money he he worked with tons of the greats like I said, the dude wrestled Bruno in the garden. That is pro wrestling's version of shaking Frank Sinatra's hand. Like it is, is a big deal. I see a lot of lists of like George being on like top 10 worst wrestlers ever. It's like watch a fucking match before 1988. <laughs> I just think he should be remembered more fondly entertaining. He committed. Holy fuck. He committed to the animal gimmick so intensely that when he does a straight up interview, people are like, wow, he can talk. So, you know, put some respect on George Still's name before I slap what culture's dick out of your mouth. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Shots fired. What culture? <laughs> That's all this is building up to. <laughs> so you're really going to love the death match of Sammy Callahan with Sam Simon from what culture? <laughs> I know it's side to your, of the fence you're on there. With working with high spots, I get to meet a lot of these people. And sometimes when we think about episodes, we suggest people and this was one of those that I suggested because I had some always have some cool stories about about people that we discuss on here and and George is one of those people we booked him for an autograph signing one time and he was a bit surly but it was very much uh it was in New York City he was an older gentleman uh health probably wasn't all that great so yeah I I I was a early 30 year old man and I was surly so I can't fault a 70-year-old George Animal Steel being surly at an autograph session, especially dealing with New York and LaGuardia and all of that such. But let me tell you a story that always comes to mind now whenever I think of George Animal Steel. Because when people think of George Animal Steel, they think of turnbuckle pads and everything else. Not me, though. I think of a very particular time uh, when I met George Animal Steel. I was actually on a show with him, a Northeast wrestling show. And the situation was set up where it was a tag team match. Uh, it was uh, Bull Dread, and I think like maybe Ron Zombie or Bull Dread and some, some King Brian Anthony, excuse me. It was, it was not King Brian, but it was just Brian Anthony, Bull Dread, taking on Matt Taven and a guy who was police chief of Waterbury, Connecticut. Because <laughs> these are high school shows. <laughs> They get to do what they want to do. Uh, and this was also a fundraiser for the PAL of Waterbury, Connecticut. 
And of course, you have Matt Taven and and Brian Anthony. They're they're going to be fantastic, and they'll guide this match along. And and Bull's going to do what Bull does. And in Matt Taven and the police chief's corner was Georgie Animal Steel. Now there was a, a a spot set up to where Matt Taven was going to do a moonsault off the top rope to the floor, <laughs> and Bull was going to be there to catch him. And kind of the setup for that, from what I understand, was. Bull was going to go to the outside, kind of bow up to George Animal Steel. George Animal Steel was going to punch Bull Dread, and then he was going to take this moonsault from Matt Taven. Well, somehow some things get lost in translation. A lot of people want to put a lot of heat on Bull Dread, which he is not guilty, but he's also not completely innocent in the situation. Instead of taking one punch from George Animal Steel, George Animal Steel punched him once, punched him two times, and there you can see in the video because we were recording the event uh highspots.com recorded the event and you can see on the videotape clearly matt taven looked over his shoulder saw george animal steel punch bull dread as planned and then matt's like okay i better hurry up and climb to the top rope because it is about a timing you don't want to leave bull just kind of just standing there so he saw the punch and was like okay it's time for me to climb to the top because that's a cue he's going to take a punch and then take this moonsault well george kept on punching bull and Bull can clearly see Matt Taven climbing to the top rope. And I don't know why Bull did not communicate to George Animal Steel like, hey, get out of the way. <laughs> and and also, too, I'm kind of curious why it was not discussed to George like, hey, just punch him one time and get out of the way. When we laid everything out, why was that not discussed? Right. Now, granted, Bull should have said something when he saw Matt climbing to the top rope. None of that was done. None of that was done. And Matt Taven did a moonsault off the top. And on to George the Animal Steel. <laughs> and a little unknown fact about the said moonsault onto George the Animal Steel is that actually the way the moonsault happened, Matt Taven's dick landed on top of George the Animal Steel's head. <laughs> yes. So basically, George the Animal Steel fucking headbutted Matt Taven's dick from a moonsault. So not only did Matt Taven hit a WWE Hall of Famer, he's also now <laughs> fucking crotched. <laughs> And nobody really caught him properly, but George gets fucking wiped out. <laughs> and and <laughs> that is the biggest bump that George Animal Steel has ever taken in his entire career. <laughs> and, it is, and now at 70 plus years old, he has now taken a moonsault to the outside. Like that has never happened in his entire <laughs> career. And here is this man who has jumped off the top rope, done a flip off the top and landed on top of George. Dick first. Dick first. <laughs> And uh, our ringside camera guy for for the evening was Patrick Price, who works with PWX. He saw all this happen before his eyes while holding a camera. And as Patrick describes, you see George Animal Steel lying against the guardrail. And Patrick's like, are you okay? And George just has this far off look <laughs> in his eyes. Like looking off in the distance as if he's dead. Yeah. Like Patrick's like, I think he's dead. I, I think George Animal Steel's dead. And... Tommy Dreamer is there, and he's on the show. Oh, shit. Tommy Dreamer, ECW, everything that he's done. Tommy Dreamer saw this all happen and still, to this day, says it is top three. (laughs) One of the craziest things he's ever seen in (laughs) professional wrestling ever. (laughs) Top three. After everything he saw with ECW and, and everybody, Georgia Animal Steel catching a moonsault at 70 plus is the craziest thing you've ever seen amazing now we had the footage we came all the way back and i'm like 
This is the very beginning of YouTube. So I need to put this out into the world. Uh I capture it, I put it up, and I upload it to YouTube. And I label the YouTube clip, George the Animal Still Dies. Because motherfucker died. And uh, the promoter immediately told me to take that down. But then we, I was like, come on, like, you've, we've got to put this out into the fucking world. And he goes, can you just change it to, to not die? So I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> Fine. George Animal Steel catches a moonsault, whatever. And then when George passed, the promoter then asked, like, hey, can you just take that off the, the DVD? And then can you take that clip down as well? Uh-huh. Which, if I was George Animal Steel and I was 70 plus and I survived taking a moonsault... I want everybody to fucking see that. Right? And now, I think part of the reason why the promoter didn't want that, because he books a lot of legends, he doesn't want legends to think, oh, when I go to this (laughs) show, fucking people are just going to do moonsaults on me whenever they fucking feel like it. I'm not taking a Canadian destroyer. (laughs) But I I have a suspicion that George would be cool with that video clip being circulated around, and there's places you can go to see it, because obviously Nick has seen it recently. I think if you look up on one of the $5 lives, I'm sure it makes an appearance. So you can find this clip. It's out there. And that was another thing that was dumb about us taking it down. Like, it's been on our YouTube page for years. It's circular. It's probably a meme to something by now. You could probably search George Animal Steel, and it's probably a meme you can send to somebody via text right now, for all I fucking know. But here's the reason why I think George would be cool with it. Because after that show happened, uh, we had another show the next day, and George was on that show. And Matt Taven, like, was embarrassed. <laughs> Even though it wasn't really his fault. He was just kind of put out there. And he was embarrassed. We were giving him a hard time about it. And we were just giving him a hard time about it. And then all of a sudden, George walked in to the locker room. And, oh. and it all got quiet. Oh. And fucking George just walked over to Matt Taven. And he goes, I'm going to keep my eyes on <laughs> And we were in this locker room, which ceiling is lower than the ceiling here in the Manning Cave. Yeah. Like, it was an unusually low ceiling, and, and and George kept saying, like, if I see you climb on top of these lockers, I'm running the fuck away. <laughs> <laughs> like, and kept making, and every time he walked into a room, he would always make a joke to Matt. Right. And he goes, I'll keep my eye on you. If I see you up there on the top of that locker, I'm running away. And so, like, and, and he would just, he just kept, like, needling Matt and making, like, his, Matt was obviously embarrassed. He apologized profusely for it. Everybody apologized if you, but like George just made it a joke, yeah. a running joke all day long, laughed about it. And I think in some small respect, being the wrestler he is, I think he was like, fuck yeah, I took him. That was song. pretty cool. And that's, that was pretty cool. <laughs> and I, I think that that's how I remember George Animal Steel being so cool about it. Didn't say a crossword to Matt Taven or Bull Dread or the promoter or anybody. Just kind of like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> just kind of going along with the ride, which uh, is basically the story of his entire career. And that's that's how I remember George Animal Steel just being so cool about taking a moonsault at 70 years old. That's awesome. All right. Well, thanks for listening to our Christmas episode, I guess. Nick, say some horrible word real quick. <laughs> Moist. How about that? Have that get everybody turned off? Uh, so uh, thanks to everyone donating to our Patreon. If you're still in the Christmas spirit, you head over to patreon.com slash timbellpod and get yourself a present and also kind of give us a present. I don't know. No, I liked it. And then uh, Ghost of Christmas present. Oh, Come on, Ghost so of Christmas. God. All right. Well, 
<laughs> find us on the world wide web at timbellpot.com or at timbellpot on all the social medias jake's man scout manning mike is j trotter 27 and i am nick olesa on all the social medias episode over bah humbug Ooh, baby, it's the American dream. Go there, Rose, baby. Here to talk to you, listeners, about hot times, baby. Hot times. This is when the man scout can afford to buy no more tents. Hot times. This is when Micah Loving is a sober daddy. Hot time is when you ain't satisfying your lady. So if you don't want to put the boys over at Tim Bell Pod on hard times, baby, I recommend you head on over to patreon.com slash Tim Bell Pod, baby, where you can help support this podcast.